Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have some Zendikar Rising previews. Thank you. Finally, standard rotation. You're coming. Not soon enough, but it's happening. Yeah, maybe we can strike some kind of Faustian bargain to accelerate that a little bit, because it's long overdue at this point, and I can't tell you how excited I am. And these two cards did a good job of kind of priming us let us know what we should be looking for and i think they're quite good well at least one is quite good the other one is well remains to be seen but we're going to get into that in just a moment okay i'm <laughs> i'm curious to know which one you actually think is good uh which, which one should i do first do the one you're most excited about okay i'm i'm more excited about jace is this the one that you're not excited about no i think this card is very good very oh, very okay. good actually Great. Uh, Jace Mirror Mage, one UU, four starting loyalty, kicker two. That's gas, by the way. Just that mm-hmm. line of text is gas. When this enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, create a token that's a copy of it, except it's not legendary and its starting loyalty is one. And then it has plus one, scry two, and zero. Draw a card and reveal it. Remove a number of loyalty counters equal to that card. CMC from this. Awesome, awesome card. First of all, just from a design perspective, like like you said, the addition of Kicker to a Planeswalker, really cool path to go down and does a little bit to solve some of the Planeswalker issues, I think, in a way that like maybe static abilities we're trying to do and mostly we're a little bit too good at. I I think Kicker finds a sweet spot of being able to make designs that are interesting that aren't just like draw cards, win the game and make the game about something other than the primary axis of interaction. I have a friend who has often proposed to me that every mechanic in magic is just Kicker. Basically. A different variant of it. So it's good to return to base kicker because that is the purest form of a magic mechanic. I see this card playing a major role, maybe across a lot of formats. And I think people are undervaluing it on a couple different axes. And the first one is that scrying in larger numbers scales very, very hard. So like scry two in and of itself is a fine thing to do, but being able to get to a point where you have a stable battlefield and then just immediately popping off like a scry four means you've really set up your next draw step to be ready for whatever the next step of the game is. And it doesn't really matter what that step is, be it, you know, going to get a removal spell or so it does a nice job of playing in that position of the classic planeswalker where you struggle for control of the game and then you slam this thing down and you're in a good spot. But I think the really bright spot here is that it just functions as the three mana transition, which has become so critical. And right now that's a role being filled mostly by Uro. And granted, it will continue to be as long as Uro is part of the format. Remains to be seen if that's a long-term thing or a short-term thing. But you have to be able to function in the early game in present magic. And you also need to demand scaling from your cards. And I think Jace Mirror Mage is checking both those boxes simultaneously in a really new and interesting way. Yeah, it's it's a little small ball, you know, like... Even if you, for five mana, you kick this thing, right? Like you're going to get a bunch of uh, card filtering or card advantage, and then your opponent can do bigger things. Like, you know, if your opponent plays a Nissa or whatever, like you're behind, right? But I I think that with rotation, that is going to matter less, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
maybe magic can get back to a point where if you look at this thing kind of like you know a divination that kicks into uh jace's ingenuity or something like obviously it's like different and maybe better than that it's like that that's good clean magic right like getting that sort of advantage from three mana or five mana and that's kind of where jace fits and yeah obviously adding adding kicker to this is super nice because the three mana planeswalker slot is like well do we do we make them busted or do we make them just like not have as big of an impact as like the four mana cards so that when you draw them later on they're they don't really do a whole lot and this kind of fixes that by having kicker yeah, yeah exactly right also, these two cards, like working in concert with each other when you have two copies on the battlefield, like the scry two draw card setup, getting that as your planeswalker, like that's the payoff on your planeswalkers. Every turn you get to scry two and draw a card. And, you know, I'm simplifying things a little bit. You can certainly have scenarios where you don't have enough loyalty to do that setup, but I think it's mostly going to work out in your favor if that's what you want to do. Right. That's a really good baseline. And then there's like, the half fail case, which is not something we're used to at all assessing with a planeswalker because you do this thing and then they answer half of your Jace. Well, you still have like the other portion that is continuing to accrue a smaller advantage, but also bridging you to like the next Jace, if that's what your deck is set up about, or, you know, whatever your transition into the ultra late game is going to be, be it Uro or any other of the powerful, powerful end games we presently have. So that is something too that I don't think people are going to understand until this card is in play. In much the same way we just saw Teferi Master of Time be a really challenging card to assess in a vacuum until you put it onto the battlefield. I think Jace Mirror Mage does the same things because we just haven't seen anything like this before. And especially that half fail case is going to be something that people are not factoring into their value calculations right now. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at this card and just be like, well, it doesn't deal with anything that's on the battlefield. It doesn't protect itself. Like, how could this possibly be be good or great or whatever? And I think the fail case of just its cycling is completely fine, but a lot of the time you're going to be able to get a card off it and then they still have to attack it. Or if you kick it, you're going to be able to get like, you know, two cards off it or whatever. I, I think that that makes it, probably better than than people are thinking it is where it's just like you know this three mana personal howling mine or whatever like that that sort of card looks to me like a sideboard card right like you obviously narset saw main deck play a lot of the time but there were also a lot of decks that used it specifically as a sideboard card against control decks when say you're playing like is it phoenix and you're playing against a bigger control deck and you need some sort of card advantage engine this is going to be the perfect sideboard card for that and that, if nothing that's else that's a good point yeah. Yeah. If if nothing else, it will a hundred percent see play in that role. One of the things that I think has fallen out of favor in present standard is that kind of switch up in the post board games in these control scenarios. So, like previously in something like a Soul Time Mirror, you might look towards a two mana or three mana small ball value engine to have a persistent advantage if your opponent's deck isn't one that can get on the battlefield and isn't one that can challenge you early. Like that's just the way we always played those matchups. Original Jace even is like the first example of that. Like you're yes. not being challenged yeah. on the battlefield. <laughs> just go ahead and generate some small advantage and you can do it out of the sideboard a lot of the times. But that's not something we really do anymore. And part of that is because the three mana planeswalkers were so powerful. It's like, I don't have to do small ball with my three mana planeswalker. I can play Teferi and invalidate half your game plan. And then Narset 
doesn't do the persistent advantage thing. It's really more of a lock piece that has a little bit of card advantage stapled on. So certainly is more powerful in a lot of situations. I'm not trying to say Jace is better than Narset. They're just very different cards. And I think Jace is more akin to a classic version of the sideboard transitional plan and thing that can really punish an opponent who isn't willing to press you in the early game. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And then there's the scenario where you have Jace in like the Simic decks when uh, Eldraine first came out. And granted, those decks had Oko or whatever, but it's like Jace in a deck full of creatures, right? It's like this, mm-hmm. this is a thing that gives you a threat against control that doesn't just die to sweepers or most yep. sweepers at least. There's still things like Storm's Wrath or whatever. But then if you, you know, ramp into it like Paradise Druid or whatever, you have some blockers and you get to kick this and start accruing advantage that way while you have your creatures kind of holding down the fort. Like that's another way that you can use this card. And it, it also seems quite fine there. Yep. And let's not forget Joel Real is still around, which is a card that oh, we're yeah. both pretty high on and hasn't really done the job it was supposed to do. Again, because of a lot of the other constraints in the format, all of which are going to change when we get to rotation, which is very, very important to keep track of. But I, I love this card in combination with Joel Real. And it does that like bifurcated game plan really well, where it's something that can scale into the late game, but also you get that early pressure. So it's pretty easy for me to see. I don't Small ball's not quite the word I'm looking for, but a fair-ish Simic deck that's like Brazen Borrower, Joel Real, Jace, and just relying on good value creatures and card advantage. And all of this feels a little silly when Uro's around, but number one, we don't know how long Uro is going to be around. Number two, we don't know what mana looks like, which I think is something that's being slept on a little bit right now. Like if Uro becomes much harder to cast, that's going to be an issue as well. Not to say the card will ever disappear from the metagame, but it might have to be in very specific situations. So we'll have to see how all that plays out as time goes on. There's there's always going to be like Thornwood Falls or whatever, right? Some right. sort of Simic tap land. Right. And like you can work for it. I, I mean, Uro's too good that nobody's going to work for it. Like it's just going to be around, but it's hard to understand how much of the metagame it will occupy. And then there's always possibility of banning which you know that's something we have to keep in mind all the time these days so i'm not going to discount that either yeah interesting point about joel rail because my mind defaulted this to like the dark confidant reveal and this actually just says draw a card and reveal it not like reveal the top card of your deck blah 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 and that seems very specifically pointed towards joel rail it does. It's a it's a weird wording. It's not what I would expect the words on this card to be. But I guess with Jace, it makes a little bit more sense, right? Like this is just what Jace does, draws cards. So yeah, just this is one of the cooler cards I've seen in a while. It's not like a lot of the wow factor in present sets is tied up in, wow, how can you make this card? I don't feel that way about Jace Mirror Mage. I'm just like, wow, this is a really smart application of the Planeswalker card type and should right. do interesting things in the format. No, this is the sort of card that I kind of wish existed. You know, I use Jace Bellerin a lot. I use Narset as a sideboard pivot a lot. And this is basically like the, the next step in that line. And this looks like a very good version of that sort of thing. So I'm definitely excited to use it as that. But, you know, then there are also the applications of like, well, maybe this is just a, a main deck card in certain archetypes and you get to use it like that too. But at the very least, you know, going back to, pioneer modern whatever like i there will definitely be times where i register this instead of narset makes sense yeah don't sleep on that kicker ability too i'm telling you you are undervaluing what it's like to have two of these in play at the same time right now 
Yeah, definitely agree. All right, next card. Nahiri, Heir of the Ancients, 2R-Dub, 4 starting loyalty, plus 1. Create a 1-1 white core warrior creature token. You may attach an equipment you control to it. Minus 2, look at the top 6 cards of your library. You may reveal a warrior or equipment card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library. Minus 3, this deals damage to target creature or planeswalker equal to twice the number of equipments you control. So no real ultimate on a four mana thing. And I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting away from ultimates again, if you go back about a year and a half ago, you and I were very excited about the changing face of planeswalkers. They were getting more and more narrow and suited to specific applications. And I think there was a point where we like called Vivian Reed, the last of the (laughs) overpowered planeswalkers. That kind of blew up in our face pretty spectacularly, but now it feels like maybe we're going back in that direction a little bit, and these Planeswalkers are designed to do very specific things, which makes this card really hard to evaluate right now, right? Like, we just don't know. Obviously, there's going to be some equipment in this set. You can count on that. How good is it going to be? How widely played is it going to be? That stuff we just have no concept of right now. Yeah, I I will note that, granted, this is modern and obviously it's a very fast format and all the cards in the deck cost like one mana or whatever but there's already like a colossal hammer sigarda's aid type of deck that exists and this is a four mana card that also helps you do that so i don't know maybe maybe there's some sort of deck like that in uh pioneer historic or whatever so that yeah. can pave the way for that which is kind of cool boros is just doing this look at the top six cards thing uh, i think this one is certainly more fair than winota but yeah, kind of kind of interesting that it's it's kind of going down that route. And like someone posted that collecting company should have been a white card. And I basically agree with them. I agree with that. That's a really good take. And it does seem to be the way Boros is headed in terms of getting some card advantage into their their portion of the color pie. I'm glad you mentioned Winota because I have to give credit to Ari Lax, who tweeted this out and put together the combination of abilities on this card. Create a 1-1 white core warrior creature token. Well, that's a non-human. Look at the top six cards of your library. You may reveal a warrior or equipment card. Well, that's Winota or Embercleave. And then there's the minus three. But this is like a card tailor-made to suit up with Winota. And Winota, not a card that I think people love to play against. Certainly not in the Agent of Treachery form. I think like MJ's Mardu deck, much closer to a reasonable application of Winota and one that I think was net positive for the format. So we don't know what the next wave of Winota looks like. This seems like a card that's supposed to team up with Winota, even if it is clustering the four drop slot a little bit. I'm not saying you max out on both those cards, but having some redundancy where your card is super reliant or your deck is super reliant on Winota to even function, it makes sense that you could use Nahiri to be copies five and six uh, if you were in the market for that kind of setup. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But so, yeah, my initial thought on this in Winota was like, oh, that's that's like a lot of four drops, you know, but it also means that your four drop is also just always packed, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, maybe it's not eight copies or seven. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is five or six or something. But it just means that if you don't have Winota, you have something else powerful to do on that key turn. And maybe, you know, the powerful thing in this case is just try and find Winota for next turn or whatever. And that's probably fine. But 
it is it is really hard to evaluate this card because these Boros equipment theme things have mostly just been limited only, and they've also mostly been failures there. So I am kind of expecting just a bunch of bone saws and weaponsmith trainees and whatnot, but we'll see. I mean, if there's a way that they can do it and have it be like, oh, this is like my my core tribal deck and it's like maybe tier one standard playable or whatever, that would be cool. Yeah, it does seem as a design principle that there is a strong amount of dislike of equipment. And I I got that. I used to get that. But after going through the last year, like all these things that we deem too powerful or net negatives just seem pretty laughable in the face of what we did instead. So a lot of my concerns about things like equipment or I don't know, quality one mana removal have very much vanished under the weight of Fires of Invention and Wilderness Reclamation and Oko and all these other absolutely bonkers cards. So I am more inclined to give equipment a fair shake this go around. It does seem like for making things more about creatures and upgrading creatures and a little bit of combat, maybe meaningful combat, uh, rather than just like combat to spin the Winota wheel or something like that. That's right. something I could get really excited about. So you mentioned Embercleave too, which kind of means that whatever sort of fair-ish equipment thing that they're trying to plan probably isn't going to come to fruition because... Because you have to plan around it, Embercleave existing? Well, it's just like, what are you going to do? You're going to get maybe like Flare Husk or something like it, Bone Splitter or whatever, and you're trying to do these cutesy things. And it's like, well, you know, one of the games you're just going to find your Embercleave and then the rest of your stuff that you're doing doesn't really matter, you know? I don't know. Embercleave never really entered my mind as an equipment. It was like, okay, yeah, maybe you can stone forge for it. Technically it's an equipment, but it's, it's just a fireball. Right. And it dramatically goes against whatever sort of game plan Nahiri would try to have you be doing. Sure. Okay. I see what you're saying. Like Nahiri, Nahiri mostly ignoring the equipment clause or the, the plus one you may attach an equipment and just like going into Winota and finding either Winota or Embercleave makes way more sense to me than it doing like bone splitter fair stuff. Yeah. So it's almost a little sad in that it just yes. gets roped into the same things that have defined, you know, the broken style archetypes of the past year, like uh, Embercleave setups. And I, I don't know. I, I want to be more optimistic about the card. Maybe now isn't the time for optimism. Uh, it just seems like the right way to approach this though. Like this is the chance to solve problems. So I'd rather go into it thinking, okay, this problem probably is going to be solved rather than preemptively writing off the chances of these things to be anything other than just vehicles for the brokenness of Throne of Eldraine to flow through. Yeah. I mean, I think that there there is a world that exists where like, oh, here's all this cool sort of fair equipment stuff that you can be doing and you can make a deck out of it and it's solidly playable. But then a lot of the games that you're playing doing your fair thing, you're just going to find your Amber Cleave and like one shot your opponent. So mm -hmm. it like, I'm not saying that those things aren't going to exist. I'm just saying that like Amber Cleave is going to ruin the fun of the fact that that would exist. Yeah. Easy mode. Yeah. Easy mode isn't always fun. It can be fun. Like I think there should be easy modes in Magic. I think they're an important part of Magic but you usually want to work a little bit harder to put together these cool synergies. Right. You know, it's like you're, you're in this tense 
limited game or whatever, and you have to figure out these these intricate combat scenarios, and then you just draw a falter and kill your opponent or whatever. It's right. like, oh, okay, you know, like I, I put that card in my deck for a reason, but it did take the fun out of actually solving that puzzle. And I felt pretty similarly about the Felidar Sahili combo when it was in standard, where you're playing like this nice energy, like card advantage game, and you're grinding out your opponent, and then they just tap out and you peel the last combo piece and you kill them. And it's just like such an anticlimactic ending, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I and, think that's and, always been the knock against Splinter Twin type setups, right? Is this just like, here's my two things, game's over. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, I mean, well, Splinter Twin, I think, was a little different because originally it was just all in on the, the the combo piece. But yeah, when when it started becoming more of like a tempo deck, more of a fair deck, and you were playing this nice game and they, they peel Twin or whatever, then yeah, yeah. it kind of sucked. Yep. So I don't know. It would be cool if the fair stuff existed. It, it's also kind of, I appreciate it, I don't, I don't think it's like good design necessarily where it's like you read the text on this card and it's like, oh yeah, this is like all fair stuff. And if the things exist to do the fair stuff, that's cool. But realistically, like Ari pointed out, you know, Warriors, Winota, Equipment is Embercleave. And it's like probably nothing fair is going to happen with this card. So yeah, very hard to do sad. better than those two together. How often do you think the minus three is going to be activated for more than like, oh, I happen to have an Embercleave in play already or whatever, you know? It doesn't seem like it's all that useful, but we don't know what equipment looks like. So, I mean, that clause made me think like, well, is there something like living weapon in this set where you just want to load up on equipment and your equipment is also your like army at the same time? Because that's that's pretty interesting with Nahiri. Like that's a fair application that gets me pretty excited. Again, it's still going to top off probably at Embercleave if that's a real thing, but there's something cool about that just having this army and then this is your removal spell on top of it, as well as your source of card advantage, like a mid range Nahiri deck based around good, solid living weapons would be something I'd be really into. Yeah, that would be sweet. Uh, I, I don't know like the, the lore behind that or, you know, like living weapon itself doesn't really make a lot of sense as far as like germs on Zendikar or whatever, but I don't know. Look, if the last year has taught us anything, it's that we are all vulnerable to germs at all times. Uh, so Word. I, th- I think we should be aware, although this sounds really dumb because I know very clearly that this is not a germ we're presently dealing with. But still, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I still got the joke, yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, so for Zendikar previews, those being two cards, I think that's a good way to start us off. It's not like oh, the set is obviously going to be bomb. I mean, the Kicker on Jace is not just exciting because it's Kicker on a Planeswalker. It's just like Kicker is in the set. So that's yep. cool. Love that makes kicker. me happy. And these two cards aren't necessarily like the, the Chase rares in the set or whatever, but they are doing interesting things, which makes me think that the set is going to be interesting. So yep. these cards make me want to see more previews. Yeah, I've, I've always said over the past year of strife and difficulty that we've had, the cards remained interesting. Like every time we sat down to do one of our preview shows, it was like, this is something I was excited about, something I could talk about for a long time. My concern was never that they were running out of interesting ways to make magic cards. Everyone at Wizards is very good at doing that. They just missed on the power scale a little bit. So if magic cards continue to be interesting, that's all I really ask for. I think the most I struggled through preview season was Ikoria, just because I couldn't grasp like what sort of effect really companion was going to have or mutate was going to have like the, the entire set was just like fake magic cards. Basically Mm. it was just stuff that was all really hard to evaluate for the most part. Yeah, really true. I I would say the same thing about corset 21 and in terms of lack of interest for a different reason though, at that point, the pillars were so set up 
that it was really hard to track forward how any of these cards could matter without there being yeah. a ton of bands. And then we got a ton of bands. So yeah, but I, like reading new card decks is cool, and you know, trying to figure out what the intended use for them is, and I, I think they're doing a pretty good job of making cards for older formats or at least like cards that are cross format playable. And I think that mm-hmm. Jace is one of those where it's like I, before, you know, like two, two, three years ago, we would look at a standard set and be like, okay, maybe one of these cards like gets yep. into modern or whatever. And now it's just like, I, if standard sucks, I mean, we can always think about pioneer or whatever. And <laughs> there are usually plenty of cards to go in all of these other different formats too. So there's always something for me to do during preview season, even if at the end of the day, it's like, you know, Uro's busted or fires is busted, whatever. Yeah, every set since Modern Horizons has been Modern Horizons. So there's always that to go back yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, No, that's definitely true. So obviously can't cover a whole show on two preview cards alone. I mean, eh, we could probably do it if we tried. But Yeah, I'm sure. Field of the Dead also got banned again in Historic. So we can talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, let's talk sure. about it. This, this was a tough one to swallow, Jerry. I have to be honest with you. What? Why? Well, okay, so you know it's right. Like, you know Field isn't yeah, supposed yeah. to be here. But we came here last week, and we were, like, pretty excited and both having a pretty good time with the format, knowing it was the best thing to do. Like, still, at this point, you're like, well, they returned Field of the Dead to the format previously. They knew Hour of Promise was coming. They knew Explore was coming in Jumpstart. Like, you don't have to be brilliant to put these cards together with Field of the Dead. It's very obviously something that you're in on. So to me at that point, it's a signal that we believe this mode of gameplay benefits historic by being part of the equation. Like, Right, it's- but we're, we're also thinking like, eh, it doesn't, you know? But yes, everything pointed to them probably not banning it again. Right. It just seemed like they had made up their mind on this card because you brought it back in the face of just very, very powerful evidence that this could be a meaningful thing in the format. So I make the decision to be like, well, I'm on board with that. If that's the way you want to do this, I'll figure this out. I will work to figure out the best field deck. I'll spend all of my wild cards putting these decks together and spend a bunch of time playing and get to the point where I feel like I have something really interesting to say about the archetype. And I'm getting ready to write a full article on it with like a detailed sideboarding guide. And then just on a random Thursday, which is generally not how these announcements work, like the morning after we put out this podcast that I'm pretty pleased with and thought we did a nice job with, it's just completely invalidated. And yeah. Having been through that so, so many times now, I was just, I was deflated. And it's rare that I get deflated by my involvement with magic. Even in really bad times, I can find paths forward. And this just hit me. It hit me different. I was like, enough. I'm tired. I don't want to keep working on stuff and have it invalidated the next day. It's just a constant thing. And here we are doing another show about the impact of a ban. How many shows have we done about the impact of a ban over the course of this year. Like how many times can you do the same thing? Uh, it's It's been like three shows or something. You know, There's no really, way I, it's only been three <laughs> shows. It feels like it's every show. It I, really I, does. I haven't been counting, but you know, somewhere in, the, in that ballpark, three, 15, who knows? Yeah, 15, 16, uh, just a preposterous number. So this one hit me hard, even accepting that it's the right thing to do. And like the format is almost certainly better for it. And I can get back into it under those terms and understand eventually we all benefit. 
fun. It took me a minute. I didn't play any historic after they made that announcement. And I didn't play any magic, in fact, for the entire weekend. I was just like, nope, I'm out doing other things. That's enough. No, that's fair. I looked at it a little bit differently where it was pretty clear that unbanning it, like, I, I thought unbanning it in the first place was a mistake. You Same. Know? Like, Same. It was just like, okay, yeah, they, they banned that card. Cool. That makes sense. Like this, this card is like kind of busted. And then they started coming out with, like you said, explore our promise, whatever. And things are just getting worse. And it was sort of masked by the fact that wilderness reclamation was still legal. So people were playing teamer rec and they had field in their deck, but it, you know, it's a teamer reclamation deck, right, Brian? So that's right. clearly that's what problem. we called it. So yeah. And I don't, I just, I knew that it was going to get banned again eventually, you know? So I don't know. I didn't, I didn't make any assumptions about where I assumed that their thought process wasn't like their thought process and their feelings on it can change. Right. Yeah. So maybe yeah. they, they did release uh, our promise and whatnot, assuming that field needed the help or whatever. And then it was like, Oh crap, actually, no, uh, <laughs> this is like a little too good. And they're, they're allowed to change their minds, you know, but I agree that there was also a period in there where people were playing a lot of bad stuff in their field of the dead decks. And if they are looking strictly at win rates and not necessarily like playing themselves and like tuning the, the best lists or whatever, it's like, yeah, okay, well, everyone's winning 45% of the time with field of the dead, like the anti field of the dead, then who cares? Let people have their fun. But then yeah, we got our promise and thoughtsies and pact negation and all this stuff. And it was just spreading massively because someone finally figured out what a best list is. And that became the consensus best list. And then there were like, you know, 70% win rates with the deck or whatever. And at that point, it's like, you know, they have to pull the trigger, man. They don't have any other choice. I do know that. And I can accept that and I can still be frustrated about it because I think the clarity behind the decision-making just isn't there right now. And there's not enough foresight. Like that's what I'd really like to see here is a little bit of foresight. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a real cost to not only like having given up a ton of wild cards around support cards, which I mean, our promise maybe sees play a game nope. again. Maybe it doesn't. Nope. I, I, <laughs> I tend to think no. Yeah. It just doesn't really compete with the other things going on. So that's a card that's wasted. And then there's a bunch of weird sideboard stuff that I know I invested a lot of wild cards in. So, you know, I write off those losses. I just take it as part of like being a magic content creator, but I do think about the people who that's really meaningful for. And that's a lot of investment of, you know, if you're free to play and you are dying to participate in historic, and this is what you put all of your wild cards into, I feel bad for you. And I wish there was more consideration about those type of things and those scenarios and I know I was talking with people a bit about it on Twitter. Matthias Hunt had a really nice idea of like two X wild cards on banning. Like, yes, at least like that seems fine. I, I know everything impacts the bottom line, right? And that's what all these decisions are going to be based around. But you messed up and you owe your players the respect of giving them a little something. And I promise you giving me two X wild cards for Field of the Dead doesn't even come close to what you got from me in wild cards investing in trying to make this the best deck. So yeah, I like that idea. I mean, that does make sense because there there's always things that are caught in the crossfire, right? It's like maybe you weren't even playing field of the dead, but you got wild cards for the deck that was good against it. You know? Sure. Yeah. You, what was, what was the card cards. I said I was going to tell people? Now? Oh, Alpine moon. All the people who, who made Alpine moons now are sitting there with 
Well, they were already worthless alpine moons, but now they're super worthless alpine moons. And now now they know they're worthless. Yes, now it's very clear. Yeah, 2x wildcards make sense. Hearthstone did the same thing where it was like, oh, we'll give you like a full dust rebate for your card or whatever. And it's like that, you know, I, I crafted a whole deck. Yes. Right? Like what? But at least there you can dust the other stuff too. Like you get something from that other stuff you crafted. Here you just get nothing. You just get a complete blank. Yeah. Now now you have Hour of Promises, which maybe you can't open in boosters anymore. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Who cares? Uh, So yeah, two two X wild cards makes a lot of sense. Definitely goes a decent amount of the way to eliminating some of the feel bad because we've, we've dealt with this system for a while now. And yeah. it, it clearly like is not working, especially with how frequent the bands are happening. And it's just like, this is a new format. It's still getting its legs. And whenever people figure out what a good deck is, where it's like Luca or Winota or whatever, it just gets banned. Yeah. And then people just have all these dead cards, right? So like, yep. even if you don't want to recognize like, hey, we made a mistake and we know that y'all are paying for it, they could just be like, well, you know, this is the cost of doing business right now. You know, kind of kind of like what happened with Pioneer. There was no rebate there, but it was made very clear that, hey, yes. lots, lots of stuff are going to get banned. So, yeah. Uh, or, or you could do the Wizards thing, which is just like give them the bare minimum, like the, the actual bare minimum, and then hope that that tricks them all into spending more money. So, yeah, that's a good short term strategy, but not a good long term strategy. And really, really good short term strategy, uh, especially one that pays off in like, you know, quarterly dividends, which I think they might be interested in. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of my criticism with magic over the past year has been not about the decisions they're making to make money, because I understand that businesses need to make money and I, you know, live with that. It's just inescapable. It's been the pace at which they insist upon making money. <laughs> like sure. you can be you can be profitable and spread out all that profit over 20 years. You don't need to immediately kill your golden goose. You can go ahead and collect yeah, the eggs for a you, while. You can't you can't really take a long-term strategy when you have quarterly earnings reports and you're beholden to shareholders. Like I know. I I honestly think that it's just better for business. And if I were a shareholder, I would want to see that sort of strategy. You know, it's like I want long-term gains. I want people to stick around and play magic because it's a great game and everything surrounding it is well run. You know? That's just not how business works anymore. And especially in the context of like Magic being a very small part of the Hasbro portfolio, there's no way they're going to get the luxury to work that way. It just isn't realistic. Well, which is kind of bananas, right? Because it's it's like the best thing they have. Yeah. But yeah, you'd love to see it lovingly maintained and player base rewarded, but I I don't know. It, it's a frustrating thing to deal with over and over. Oh, and along those lines, we don't usually circle back on stuff, but I did get comments. People felt like we were unfair in our assessment of the like duplicate protection that you get from things like temples. And I wanted to just circle back on that disconnect because I I know you can't open a temple in M21 before the other stuff you've opened. But I think the reason you hear people like us complain is that we buy every single card. Like we just have everything and we hit the end of those sets. And then we get to the point where we, we do get the duplicates of all of these cards and have no use for them whatsoever. Also, that was a change, right? 
that was a change where they added that protection, but it's it's been in place for a while now. It's just no, I hit the I end know. every time anyway. Right, right. And sure, that, like I, th- I think that's a fair point for people to make, but it it's still not a great fix. And also, yes. it, initially, that wasn't what they were doing until people right. complained about it. So yeah, very true. Yeah, that's that's just another one of those things where it's like this is is being like kind of poorly run or like they're not super connected to the player base. Like if you, if you had a player making those decisions, they would be like, Oh, well, what about this scenario? Right. Because as soon as that happened, everyone was like, what about this scenario? And then they're right. like, Oh, we, we either didn't think about it or hoped that y'all wouldn't complain about it. Yeah. Hoping that magic players aren't going to complain, not a long-term successful strategy. Like <laughs> you're not going to you know, hit on that one all that often. In, in like 2000, you could probably get away with that, but Maybe. in in 2020, not only is your game super big and you have a lot of the, the smartest people playing your game and thinking about these sort of things, but now we live in an age of social media where if someone makes a good point, other people are just going to run with it. Yeah. And point gets amplified. Th- yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Try and play around that stuff probably would be would be my take, but with you more long-term planning to keep people invested forever. I want everyone to play as magic for as long as I have. I want there to be 25 year players being added to the game right now. And I think tons of players are being added to the game, like at a higher rate than they've ever been added before. And my concern is they're not going to be here for that long. That's the thing I keep going back to. The retention rate is probably way lower, but I, I also want to point out that I think that Watsi wants those things too, like Wizards as a company and Wizards employees. You know, yep. they, I, I they, agree. The vast, vast majority of people that work there, even if they don't play like, you know, hardcore, like ladder grinding or whatever, still love and care about magic and they want what's best for it and they don't get the final say in a lot of things. So, like, you know, a, a lot of the stuff is, is coming down from Hasbro or being. Uh, like sacrifices or compromises that people on the Watsi side have to make. But when when we're talking about things like the Field of the Dead, like unban and then print cards for it, and then like, oops, we have to ban it again. It's like that that is a thing that they had control over. Yes, that's small enough that you can put blame pretty squarely in the realm of the magic people, I think. Yeah, and I, I don't know. Like, it, obviously, it's it's been a tough year. Uh, again, I like the fact that they they took shots. And I think that, a lot of them were shots where it's just kind of like, you know, really like you thought this would be fine, but some of them are like, okay, you know, I understand how you thought that this would be fine. And it just didn't pan out. And I don't know. Things, things are also like weird now. Like I always said, like when, when I was working there and like from my experience working there, it, it mattered so much that the people who were all working on a set or a team or whatever, kind of had to be in the same room or the same workspace because information gets disseminated so much better when you're in mm. the same room with people than everyone working from home. So like, I don't know how, how that's changing things and affecting like, you know, whether cards get banned or right. unbanned or whatever. Like, I, I don't know, but regardless, uh, I, I think that R and D folks, like, you know, they obviously realize their mistakes. They're trying to get things back on track and I'm not gonna, you know, say that they're there or whatever, but like, I, I expect them to get back on track at some point. But as far as as far as everything else is like, you know, the decisions that the company's making and stuff, like you you got kind of bent out of shape about the field ban. And I I mentioned this to Nick today. It's just like I have just stopped caring. Like I <laughs> I don't I don't have 
the mental bandwidth to devote any sort of emotion whatsoever to the decisions that Wizards makes or the results that occur from them. I just can't do it. So if if they if they do something stupid, I'm just like, yeah, cool. I am envious of your discipline in that regard. Like I know it's I should not, care less. It's not discipline. It's rock bottom. There's a difference. <laughs> Don't you have nothing to be envious about? Um. Okay. I, I, I guess get I'll that. Take I get that. I get misery. that. The grass is greener. The grass is greener, dude. I get that. You know. And you know. You know the reason why I'm here. It's because I've been burned so many times, right? It's like I, I want to be emotionally invested. I want to care about these things, and I've just been beaten down so much that I can't anymore. So yeah. I I don't recommend being envious. Yeah, I guess there's still just a part of my heart that expects better. And that comes from respecting the people involved. And no, you know, of that's course. the thing we always circle back to is just like, you know that there's the capability to be better. And like you said, you believe that they will continue to get better and they're learning from mistakes and all the lag built into it is just so, so unfair. Like it's such a hard thing that they have to deal with. They, they could see this mistake play out and you're like, uh, I can't do anything about this for a year and a half. I can't imagine what that feels like. Like if I mess up something on this podcast, I'll stop the podcast and we can have Connor come in and edit it so I don't sound like an absolute clown. But you mess up in magic and you're like, well, I guess I'll get around to that uh, next June and then we'll try and fix this problem. Yeah, we mess up like one in every 20 podcasts or something. So That is true. We're pretty good. Uh, you hear mostly something resembling a live cut, but it's nice to have that parachute, right? Like if you ever jump oh, out yeah. of a plane and you're just completely off the rails, it's always good to go back. Well, yeah, I think if we didn't have that, we'd probably be, you know, more nervous, which would then cause more errors, right? Right, right. But. Yeah, that's why when we have guests on, I always emphasize the fact that like you can stop, you can mess up, don't feel like you have to nail it. Yeah, and our, our guests have mostly been good too. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I only say mostly to like cover our ass because I, I can't remember one that had a lot of like stumbling blocks or whatever. Uh, that, uh, that j- just Cho, from. but Cho's generally terrible anyway. So I think that was more of the problem. Right, than, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If he listened, he'd be really upset by this. He does still listen. He uh, he he doesn't play a ton of magic, but I know I know that he listens to at least like every other episode. So Okay, we'll see if he catches this one. Anyway, we can talk about the actual format. Yeah, let's do that. I do want to check in on Historic because I eventually got over my mood and have been back in the queues the last few days and have some opinions. And I'm interested to hear your opinions as well. No, cool. Uh, Yeah, one one last thing, actually. I I just want to say that the only reason that I wanted to like talk about you being like upset about it is because like I was surprised that you were upset about it. I was like kind of surprised that you were still emotionally invested. Yeah, and I mean, some days things just hit you different, right? Like you don't no, know, I know what I know. you're signing up for. And that day I was just like, I, I didn't write this week. I was I was frustrated. I was super frustrated and I just took some time away. And obviously I've gotten to a better place about it now, but it, it's just weird. Emotions are very, very challenging to d- both describe and understand. And this one hit me in my emotions. So. Well, dude, even if you do understand it, it's not like you can control what your gut reaction to a thing right. is going to be, you know? Yeah, and yeah good it, point. It's, it's tough when it's tied up into your job and your job was, I'm going to spend a week working on this thing and, you know, put out like this banger of an article, something you can be proud of, and then you just get gutted. So, yeah, I think it's too that I, I generally don't write in that style. Like I'm not the deck list 
guy. No, I well, know. Like, I know. Maybe a deck list guide, but not a guide, like sideboard guide, go really in depth into one archetype. Mine is more explorations and thinking about frameworks and things like that. And I like that. But when I have something that I feel really strongly about and I'm like, okay, I actually have this metagame nailed and my deck is very, very good. It's nice to be able to provide that kind of content once in a while. And, yeah. Uh, and you're like, really? This was the one time? Come on, guys. You yeah. know, give me a, give me another week or whatever. But I guess they needed enough lead time for the player's tour. Yeah. I think I'm also a Field of the Dead guy. Like I, I just are. made a lot of money with Field of the Dead and it was very kind to me. So I, I have a long standing attachment to that card. Yeah, I, I I like it, not because it made me a bunch of money. It could have if I was like also playing in those tournaments, you know. Yeah. But it is something that I definitely enjoy doing. And when you combine the two, like you're making money and having fun, golden. Good place to be. Anyway, format time, actual format time. So Feel of the Dead is banned, and that doesn't dramatically change a lot of the decks themselves as far as... There, there weren't like decks that were only prominent in the metagame because they beat Field of the Dead because right, nothing really nothing beat Field of the Dead. <laughs> so you basically remove Field of the Dead from the format, remove those decks from the format, and whatever was there is still there, except now maybe they have actual sideboard cards instead of Alpine Moons and Virulent Plagues. So the format isn't going to get too dramatically shaken up, except now you have to think about how your deck actually interacts with the other decks that exist. Yeah. And I still think a ton of the interaction in this format is going to be based around Thoughtseize, especially in post-sideboard games. Like it's such an important tool to have access to. Uh, and I think all of the other decks need to have realistic plans to be Thoughtseized regularly and be able to withstand that. And uh, the best decks in the format very, very much do. And I think there's just ways to hard target being thought seized as well, which I expect to be a very good starting point for this format beyond the really, really powerful outliers, which still exist. First in my mind, Phyrexian Tower. I mean, that just the more I play with this card, the more it feels like the standout card in the format above everything else that exists. This was a card that saw play during Saga Block. That's a good sign. It's very good. It's a lot easier to get value from it now. And there's also not everyone else doing the same stuff with like fast mana. So I I am baffled by the inclusion of this card into this format. There's also like better Yawgmoth's Bargain that exists as well, which is a weird thing to say considering how good Yawgmoth's Bargain is. But in a lot of contexts, you'd rather just have Bolas' Citadel and you're off to the races as soon as you have that card. And it's often challenging to lose when you find your Bolas' Citadel. If you have Wolfstrider in play, you're basically like some preposterous percentage to just go ahead and win the game on the spot. And that has to be the starting point for this format. It feels like both both the best combo deck and a very reasonable fair deck as well as a good Thoughtseize deck when it needs to be. And that's just checking all my boxes right now. Right, and... It's really hard for the deck to actually just like run out of gas because of collected company and all, like all the explore creatures and stuff like that. So yeah, that, it's it's a good villain. I was thinking about it today, and I thought that mono red would be the place where a lot of people would start. And uh, sure enough, like I've played against far more mono red on ladder than I have the the like Golgari or uh, Jun sacrifice decks. But I don't know. I I, th- I think you're right where. 
the the Bullets of Citadel company decks are probably the best decks right now. But in order to fit my narrative, I, I want to say this, where we have banned cards to the point where Mono Red is like the default best deck, and that makes it a good format. That is basically what I wanted to say. Now, you're correct in that Mono Red is not really in that place. It's it's the, the Yawgmoss bargain deck. So maybe my hypothesis is a little flawed, but Mono Red is still very good. I think Mono Red deserves credit for the way it shapes the format. Like you can you can be a very heavy influence on the format and maybe still not occupy the best deck slot. So I think Mono Red continuing to shape things is a good sign of that. For instance, I, I think it's shaping the way I would build my Bolas of Citadel decks because a lot of the early versions of Bolas of Citadel were there was like Abzan versions very focused on Cruel Celebrant and Blood Artist, but I'm not inclined to go that way. It took some convincing. I didn't start here and a lot of it was you being like, I just like the Explore setups. The more I play with them, the more that also makes sense to me. And a lot of it is the benefit you get against Mono Red, but also it just feels more consistent, more your B plan actually matters. Like I I can't beat you down with Cruel Celebrant, but Jade Light Ranger and Wild Growth Walker, they'll mix it up. They'll get in there and they'll kill you quick. And I've been very impressed with those configurations over any of the more combo-ish stuff I've seen out of like the completely focused Blood Artist Cruel Celebrant setups. Not to say I don't play Blood Artist. I still do. But it's it just doesn't, doesn't have to be your focal point anymore. Also, you have to keep in mind that your collecting companies are only going to hit one creature at most. Yeah, that's that's tough. You really have to change your game plan when you know you're just not getting paid. Immediately after we recorded last week, I hopped in the queues with the Bolas' Citadel deck, and I was playing mostly field up until that point. I think this was the first game I was on the Citadel side, and I sent you a picture of my first collected company. Do you remember what I put into play? So I, I remember one where I called BS because you actually hit two mana creatures. And I did. I, I hit two Gilded Goose. So that was way above average for my typical collecting And company. you're you're getting attacked by a Soul Scar Mage. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yes. So you hit gain six life against Mono Red. Dude, you're so lucky. It's and there, Really, it's like gain 12 life. Yeah, but like if I hit good cards, I just win the game on the spot and I lost that <laughs> I game. Know. Like that, that was the only thing in my hand. So I just it's, easily lost. It's gain six life, but it's going to cost you like another 18 mana or whatever. You know? Right. Uh, yes, obviously, obviously that's, that's a bad whiff. Yeah. I don't know. You need to account for that. Obviously you can't hit like Gilded Goose, Cruel Celebrant and expect to win the game. Right. And yeah. Jade Light Ranger isn't the most powerful magic card, but if you have like a Wild Growth Walker on the battlefield or whatever, you know, like that, you're still getting some extra explorers off of that and everything. You're maybe picking up land number six to cast Bullets of Citadel. You're finding Bullets of Citadel. Right. It, it matters a lot more than just having this thing that will only pay you off once you have five other cards in play. Yeah, that that was my biggest objection to the initial list was that Collected Company had one good hit. It was Woe Strider. And if you hit anything else, it was like, well, that was underwhelming every single time. That's what you needed to hit every time. And that's fine. Like, it's kind of like Nahiri getting Winota, right? You just play more copies of your Woe Strider because you're super reliant on that card. But it was disappointing in that it didn't have as strong of, of a B plan as I wanted the deck to have. Yeah. And and this one does, you know, you're you're like a, a normal Golgari beatdown plan that also just has this top end that Oko's your opponent. So uh, yeah. it is a, a very good deck, certainly. And now it is at the point where it has powerful enough cards and your creatures give you a little bit of like card advantage and filtering. And 
it, it, it is nice that the explore stuff is there so that your if your mana creatures like die to a sweeper or whatever, you can still just cast your bolus to Citadel and things like that. I mean, it, it's just a much stronger deck overall. I have to back you up because I, I know what you mean, but you have to tell people what you mean when you say Oko is your opponent because that does not make sense oh, to the vast yeah, majority yeah. of people listening. Uh, one hit KO. Correct. One hit Pokemon's KO. O- Oko. Seeping into your vocabulary. No, no. It's, it's like, you know, fighting games too, I think. But uh, yeah, Oko, like OKO in, in magic terms means something completely different. Yes. And mine is one hit KO, O-H-K-O. Yeah, it is certainly a very important strategic aspect of the deck. And I think, too, these decks need to come up with nice sideboard setups for the games because most decks are starting with multiple copies of Graft Digger's Cage right now, which makes sense. I do think that's the best card. And I've never liked just jamming a bunch of like Reclamation Sage into your Collected Company deck. I, I want to find some kind of more... I don't know. It seems like there, once you have the Explore package as your baseline, it seems like you should be able to successfully play a mid-game strategy, uh, especially if you're going to bring Thought Season against a bunch of decks anyway. And I've seen stuff with like Thrag Tusk, Liliana, Death's Mastery, and people are trying to do this main deck, which seems laughable in a format like Historic. But if you're talking about post-sideboard setups and ways to just get bigger and like grind your opponent out of resources when they're devoting so much into stopping what they believe is your main game plan with Collected Company and Bolas of Citadel, I think it's pretty easy to find eight sideboard cards that you can bring in and really just totally change the focus of your deck in post-sideboard games. Yeah, I, I played Band Company in, in one GP and my sideboard plan usually involved taking out some number of Collected Companies because I was becoming a different deck post board. And like my main deck was set up to do that too, because yep. I, I like Jace Friends Prodigy and stuff like that. And then you would end up with more spells or whatever. And yeah. I don't know, to, to the Reclamation Stage point, uh, I agree that you don't want Reclamation Stage specifically, but there are things like Thrashing Brontodon that do that job and are just fine bodies. But obviously it depends on what kind of deck you're playing against. Yeah. Yeah, you just need to understand your roles. That's something I preach a lot when it comes to sideboarding, like try and figure out how you're approaching each matchup in not only card, but also the way the games are routinely going to play out, like how they're going to end and how you're going to get through that mid-game phase and then weigh all those options and just get to plans that work. And I have a feeling a lot of times those plans are going to look a lot more like just a fair collected company deck or a a fair non-collected company deck in post-sideboard games. So uh, against Mono Red, I would assume that you take out all the Citadels, yeah? Uh, yeah, I would, for sure. At least like the burn-heavy ones, you know? Yeah. Like if they're if they're more mid-rangey and don't have as many lightning bolts or whatever, and they're just trying to play like, you know, chonky creatures or whatever, you might want that late-game push. But against the burn-heavy ones, I imagine you cut those, and then it's like, okay, you got some slots to play with as far as including spells. You know, you don't have to warp your entire deck around Collected Company, and then against control decks obviously you want the citadels but you also want thoughtsies or Uh something like it which means that you probably are shaving collected company and then you're probably talking about shaving some mana creatures too because you're just going to get caught up in sweepers anyway uh so that's the awkward tension i I might be more inclined to shave on the citadel side of things just because having access to instant speed play is so important against those control matchups but a lot of this depends on like what creature base you actually end up with and how high you can get your creature quality because you need your creature quality to be what is carrying you, not the fact that you're playing towards a Citadel setup in that scenario. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I I, I guess I would look at it like it, it depends on what your actual game plan is. Like if you right. are 
trying to fade sweepers by casting Collected Company after they Wrath of God you or whatever. I think that's fine, but you can also do things like, you know, not whatever four mana Liliana you were talking about or whatever, but like some some oh, sort of five mana Liliana. It goes even deeper than that. Oh, it was the Death Majesty. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought I think you said Dark Realms or something. I don't know. Whatever. Bad Liliana. Got it. Yes. You, I, I would be more inclined to just like cut the companies, play Thoughtseize, Citadel, and then some sorcery speed thing that lives through a sweeper that is also a threat. Okay. I, I think I like that just because you get Thoughtseize and I don't know. Just, so just like Vraska or something along those lines. I'm seeing a lot of Vraskas in this format and it's a card that doesn't quite make sense to me yet. It, it kills Cage, I guess. But yeah, that is not the one that I would turn to. I don't know. There, there's got to be there's got to be something that's like three or four mana that's actually good against a control deck. But I haven't I haven't done a bunch of exploring on this archetype specifically. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's a bunch of ways you can attack the matchup. But I, your point is clear. Have a plan. Figure out what you're doing in these postboard games. Don't just arbitrarily choose cards and be like, I like this card, or I should have less of this card. Figure out how you're winning these games. Yeah. I've, so my article this week is about. Now that field is not legal and historic, you can probably do more brewing and be successful. And I'm mm-hmm. looking at like 10 different decks that I've played over like the last week or whatever. And I don't know, it's 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 been fun. Like the decks have seemed solid and then there's not this like go over the top of you thing that is looming over you like Field of the Dead did because like Nexus got whacked and then Reclamation got whacked and then Field got whacked. And the next big thing is what, Ugin? Like who cares? Right. Uh, so you actually get some freedom in your deck building. And I, I figured that other people would just be writing about like the, the sacrifice decks and stuff. So I haven't looked too much into them, but yeah, I'm, I, I click on this sideboard. I see like three elder Gargaroths in someone's sideboard. Right. So it's like, that's a pretty clean swap, uh, against mono red for Citadel. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's a nice one. Uh, <laughs> I, like I said last week, that's been the best card for me against mono red. So like okay. that change. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look into that somewhat. I'm sure that there is something. Cause I'm, I'm just starting to get to the point where I'm pretty sure if you quizzed me, I could tell you whether or not the card was legal and historic. That's a very challenging place to reach. So the fact that you are even able to do that shows your devotion to this format. I'm not there yet. I'm getting close. Okay. Still impressive round of applause. This person has Clothis, which is okay. I would like it to be able to become a creature immediately. And I don't think you can really do that. Seems challenging. Uh, thinking about what else that controls on the opposing side. Probably good against like the uh, Croxa decks that are starting to pop up in pretty large numbers. Yeah, and it's it's like okay if you get to play a long game against Mono Red, it's fine against any Stitcher Supplier deck. Yeah, maybe against Uro or whatever. But yeah, not a great solution. There's there's got to be something else. We'll we'll figure it out. Okay, I look forward to figuring that out. What what are the decks that you're most excited about out of these ten or so you've been working on? Oh god, let me let me pull up the list. Uh, so the the first one, I will say that I spewed my wild cards on mostly because of the tweet. Bought so many wild cards this week, it's brutal. Uh yeah, I'm about to to drop some some ducats on arena again. So majors majors tweeted this deck that was uh, transmogrify platinum angel. Yeah. Did you see this? You remember this? I did. Yep. So uh, so platinum angel getting into the trials to make you not lose, and then it has pact of negation and chance for glory. So I played some of this deck. It's fairly heinous, but it's really cool. Okay. 
Also played around with some Soul Warden decks. I think I got to a good place that doesn't involve Soul Warden. And then I have three different control decks, two different Arclight Phoenix decks. Eh, maybe it's maybe it's fewer than 10. But then while you know trying to build all these weird decks and like looking at what other people were doing, I, I made a, a list of cards that I wished were in historic because they filled holes in in these decks that like decks that I wanted to build. So like things that I wanted to build around but haven't gotten there yet are Unburial Rites, definitely Gate to the Afterlife, Demonic Pact, and then Underworld Breach has kind of been done. Collected Company has also kind of been done. Uh, Oketra's Monument is the one where it's like, mm. I remember the standard deck. I remember playing this in Modern a little bit and just all of the cards that are good with this card are not legal. So my list of cards that I want legal are like Thraben Inspector, Squadron Hawk, Knight of the White Orchid, Spell Queller. It's just all white cards. Right. Well, I could use the help. That's not, not yeah, really yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. So uh, Unburial Rights is the one where it's like, this should be good. The one, the list that I've seen have just been like kind of nonsense. The, the targets just aren't great, you know? Yeah. I'm trying to think of the best thing you can possibly get and nothing is springing to mind immediately. Well, we always used to go Iona back in the day. Certainly don't have Iona anymore. Yeah, no Iona, no Elishnorn. There's Crater Hoof, but no Lingering Souls or anything. So you already right. have to be doing your own thing. And one of the ones I saw was this seven mana blue creature that like Snapcasters a spell for free. So they had that to Snapcaster, the nine mana bring all creatures from graveyards okay. into play. And then that brought in a crater hoof, which allowed them. So it's just, it's nonsense, right? But yeah, we have so many, very deep. we have so many good enablers, right? There's Stitcher Supplier, Phyrexian Tower, which is busted. And then Red has Lightning Axe, which was a card I find out was legal two days ago. And Jumpstart card? I don't know. It, it has a weird set symbol. So probably. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Lightning Axe. Uh, and then there's like all the stuff that you used to play in Phoenix, right? Like Thrill of Possibilities, Merchant of the Veil, Rick Smotty, Reveler, Champion of Wits just came back. So like there's there's a lot of cool yeah. stuff. And then there's just no payoff. Have to keep a close eye on that one. I feel like you have to end up with the payoff at some point in the future. Like you just are going to make a big creature that we can successfully reanimate. Yeah, no Angel of Serenity or the Angel that brought back all the humans. There's there's yeah, none of those. Glorious Rise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's there's like Thrag Tusk or whatever, but I'm not going through all this work to play a Thrag Tusk. Yeah. And it doesn't beat anyone. For my taste. Yep. Yeah. And then I've seen some kind of busted looking gate decks, uh, obviously with Phyrexian Tower, because that card should be in, in everything that is trying to stitch your supplier, probably. Mm -hmm. And Demonic Pact is super fair, but is is cool you know i i even though i spent like 20 wild cards on this stupid platinum angel deck majors uh i'll still spend some wild cards on demonic pack because both of those are pretty fun uh i played against a demonic pact doom foretold deck last night and my opponent uh lost 2-0 and both times they lost to their own demonic pact <laughs> just the you lose the game mode of demonic pact that's not great. I feel like you should be able to build around that because the format is huge, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they had like final payment and like I said, doom foretold and plenty, plenty of ways to theoretically be able to get demonic pack, but I was also playing control. So I was pretty happily letting them uh, resolve demonic pack, sticking like Narset to shut off the card draw. Dude, that's uh, messed up. Yeah. Yeah. It that's is kind of messed up. 
What what's your control deck look like? Because I built a blue white one, Jeskai Cycling, and then a Demir one. Working straight blue white right now. I'm not over the moon about it, but I am winning with it. It's fine. My main thing is like how far down the pact of negation rabbit hole can you go? And I yeah. I know Sam Black wrote about it today and I tweeted at him. Just like the more I play with this this card, the more I'm like were we just supposed to be playing this card a lot more than we were as a fair magic card? Because a lot of the setups you're trying to do are just so incentivized to go down this road. Like, dude, I was, I played that card a lot. Especially like in, in like block, especially when you had like teachings and Teleria West and stuff. Sure. Like I, I definitely teachings for it quite a bit. I remember that. So this, this is a, a point I make in the article where if you have a reasonably sized, like sorcery speed threat, you should just have Pact of Negation in your deck, assuming you can get yep. for it. Yeah, and that's where I got to with Field of the Dead by the end as I was playing Pact of Negation in my field deck and it was excellent and it mattered a ton. And now I'm at the point where I'm playing it just as my counterspell and control decks. And I am playing Gideon still, but I'm not convinced you actually have to do that. I uh, like Gideon. I think it, I think it's a solid card, but in scenarios where it's eating too much deck space and it's just not what you want to be doing, I think you can get away from it. And one of the things that has been true about my experience with blue-white control thus far in Historic is that Teferi Hero of Dominaria is very, very underwhelming. Unless you actually take the steps to get paid on it. And that involves playing things like Pact of Negation, where you can just jam your five mana spell and have some backup on your next turn. And then you get the Teferi untap, so you can still present multiple counter spells in the same turn. So when you start contemplating Teferi more and doing like Search for Ascontas stuff, which a lot of the control decks I've seen either give up on Search or they play one copy. I think you need to go further down that route and you need to max your sensors and cast outs and things like that to really start bringing the synergies of this deck back together and getting appropriately paid on your Teferi Hero of Dominaria because that's not a card that is actually outmoded by 2020. Like, yes, a lot of this stuff stands above or equal with Teferi, but it would also be a card at home in this present era. Like it would fit on yeah. power level. Right. And it was, it was above rate before and now it's yes. just more even keel. Yes. And I think people just haven't done a good enough job maximizing Teferi and Pact Negation is going to prove to be a big part of that. Yeah. The interesting thing building these control decks is I just hate all the counter spells that aren't sensor and Pact Negation. And that's all my blue eye control deck has right now. I have like an absorb and maybe a Dovin's Veto, and then it's four sensor for Pact Negation in my blue-white yeah. control deck. Yeah, I, I think those are just by far the best two counter spells. I'm, I'm fine with a Veto. I think that that makes sense, and that's on my list of maybes. I don't know that I could play four Pact just because it's only good in certain scenarios. And if you're trying to make Gideon happen, I think you probably could. But if you ever gotten your Gideon Bonecrusher Gianted, like a, a card, I think it just it doesn't do anything anymore. Uh, in the face of Bonecrusher Giant, I agree with you. That's not that's not a great lineup, but I have not faced Bonecrusher Giant yet as Gideon. So okay. just, I guess, lucky to dodge that scenario because <laughs> Bonecrusher Giant is pretty widely played. Yeah. Uh, the, the control decks look good to me, though, because the format was mostly a bunch of creature decks and they didn't have to actually account for you know, people like sweeping them repeatedly. It was like sweep you once and then make six two two zombies or whatever. Yep. And that's all they had to beat. And now you actually 
you know, are playing way more spot removal, way more life gain, way more interaction in general. And a lot of decks just aren't set up to deal with it. And like the uh, company Citadel decks, like they just don't have a plan for post-board games, really. It's like, oh, Thoughtseize you. I hope that's good enough. And it's just not happy. No, it's not because Thoughtseize creates small windows, right? Not large windows. And you you have to punish on the turn after you Thoughtseize. Otherwise, these decks will just rebuild. And when you can go down like, Graph Digger's cage setups, like just play your cage, protect your cage, and then the deck is too fair for them to ever sufficiently challenge you, I think. All right, so is your control deck do nothing to fairy, or are you playing like approach in actual win conditions? Uh, I am playing approach right now. That was kind of a holdover from the field era that I'm not sure is necessary anymore. I've waffled back and forth on it. I've appreciated just like close the window and it kind of goes along with the pact negation principle yeah. where it's like, okay, what are you really going to do to me on this turn? I'll just slam my approach and I'm protected with pact. So for now, three copies of approach in my deck. It's weird because you actually have, for me anyway, almost too many ways to win the game. Like I can Teferi lock you or I can Gideon beat down you, which is viable there's castle ardenvale which any one of these in and of itself would be enough for me in old builds of control yeah so it feels a little bit weird to be stacking these on top of each other but they're really all just doing multiple functions and i guess that's nice that's like some strategic diversity that you don't usually expect from these control decks they usually only go one direction well the the problem that i saw when i was building these like i said i didn't really like uh any of the counter spells all that much and Know, just things like Essence Scatter and Dovin's Veto are a little bit too narrow, whereas in standard, normally the format is like, oh, well, you're definitely playing Negator, you're definitely playing Essence Scatter. And this format is like kind of more of a split, and there's not really a good solution to that besides Sensor, and three mana for a hard counter spell is just pretty mopey in general. Yeah. And the tap-out threats are all pretty good. And yeah. be- because of that, and you not having the counter magic to protect from your opponent doing something like peeling a bolus to Citadel and just killing you, I think it means that you actually have to try and win the game rather than just completely locking them out with Teferi or whatever. I would like to get to a point where you just don't have to play win conditions, but I also have Approach in my deck right now, and I hate Approach. Yeah, I wonder if that means we're supposed to be looking at stuff like uh, Supreme Will to just enable Approach a little bit more and play like the softer three mana counter spell. Do we have Supreme Will? We would, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Get remastered. Yep. Yeah, I might want to try that over some of the absorbs I'm playing right now. Uh, or like the Dovin's Veto, that might be what I'm looking for. But honestly, like getting the second approach has not been my problem. Like once you cast the first one, you're usually in good enough position where you're going to find that second one pretty easily. You you are, and in old standard, it didn't really matter because the seven life gave you so much time usually. But right. in this format, a lot of the other decks, like, you know, goblins could like Mux's combo kill you and the company yeah. decks can... Bolus and Citadel combo kill you. It's like that window is very small. So even if you're not running into those scenarios, like I, I would still be cognizant of the fact that like there might be a game where you just immediately have to dig for the second approach. Yeah. Again, though, this all speaks to just how good Pact is in this format. Like when you have those yes, Okos, yeah, yeah, yeah. as we like to say, and they can one hit KO you, it makes a ton of sense that you need to have some way to play games in that scenario as well. And uh, Pact has completely impressed. And if you're not playing it in your control deck, your control deck probably misbuilt at this point. Yeah, because uh, the other option for Demir is tap out Scarab God. And <laughs> Pact Indigation is also kind of busted there. Yeah, I like that. And since I'm like 
you know, more sorcery speed oriented, not trying to play draw, go hold open counter magic. I have mind stone in a lot of my decks too. Very nice. Uh, have you felt the allure of Grixis calling out to you? I have played against so much Grixis, you know, Bolus into Scarab God, nah. into Planeswalker Bolus, and I just murder them every time and they get censored to death. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. They yeah. hate seeing censors so much. Yeah, I I mostly just want to like Thoughtsy's Innocent Blood Divination or whatever card advantage thing, play Scarab God and protect it. You know, I, th- I think that that is the game plan. And that's what you should be trying to do. And I don't think having more threats necessarily goes with that game plan. Okay. It's like, who, who do I want to bolus against? Like, who does that actually help? You know, it's like the sacrifice decks are like, oh, you have a creature to sacrifice now. That's cool. And the mono red decks just like double burn it out of the way or soul scar mages too big or whatever, or they have ferocity on to menace you. You know, it's like, no one cares about a random four, four body. They just don't. Yeah. Yeah, it has not mattered much. One more control deck I want to check in on real quick, just because it seems to me to be the potential home for a lot of the busted cards that defined the format previously, and that's Bant Control. Like there, there has to be an Uro deck, right? It's it just has to exist, and you yeah. would assume those pieces go towards Bant. My thing today was going to be build Bant Control. Uh, I instead fell asleep on my couch watching you Yu Hakusho. So I nice. didn't get anything done, but it sounds like uh, you got a lot done, dude. Well, if, well, I didn't even effectively watch the show though. I just fell asleep like 10 minutes into it. I don't know. I'm falling asleep a lot to the point where I'm concerned. I should probably get that checked out because I am incapable of watching anything. I just sit down and fall asleep. I'm like I, a 90 year old man. I was going to say, maybe you should watch better shows, but whatever. No, I love the show. I'm, I'm completely in at this point. But anyway, uh, that's what I did instead of build this Bant control deck. But you see how all the pieces just line up. Like accelerating to your Wrath of God seems very good. Uro is a silly magic card and will remain a silly magic card. You can still grow Spiral Explore, whatever variant of that you want to do. And there's a bunch of powerful stuff there. I mean, I'm sure people are going to want to Sphinx's Revelation. I doubt that's what you're supposed to be doing, but maybe, maybe there's enough ramp that you can actually get paid on just being this tap out snowball-y deck. I have, um, I have a couple Sphinx's Revs in my deck, but okay. I, I, I don't necessarily... I, I think that Sphinx's Rev and Approach are in direct opposition, right? It's like Rev yeah. wants you to just control the game and then draw a bunch of cards and bury them. And Approach just wants you to cast it and then cycle back to it and like not worry yeah. really about card advantage. You you have it in your straight blue-white deck? Yes. Uh, okay. So for... for ban- so I'm talking about playing like Mindstone in my blue-white deck, right? It's like obviously... Yeah. I should just have Gross Spiral and Uro. And that's that's what the standard blue-white decks did once they had Gross Spiral and Uros. Just they became Bant decks and they became better as a result. And I'm not even really playing yeah. counter magic. So it does make sense to me, but I wanted to start pure. But yeah, it is, yeah, it I is had the same thinking. It's a th- it's a thing that I note in the article where it's like, should probably just be playing Gross Spiral and Uro, you know. Yeah, that'll be my next couple of days and try and figure out exactly what these Bant lists look like because there's a point we've harped on a bunch uh, over the past few weeks and really for the past year, it's just like play these powerful magic cards. You're talking yourself out of them for no good reason. And Uro definitely falls under that category. Mindstone is like grow spiral and layaway. Yeah, that's a, that's probably a generous interpretation. I like Mindstone. I like it a lot. It's not as good as grow spiral. Obviously it's, it's like, <laughs> it's way, way worse. But if, 
if gross Spiral were like the only thing i'd be like yeah obviously you just play mindstone but since it's gross Spiral and uro and you don't care about instant speed counter magic like yeah you should right. probably just be playing those cards but it is definitely possible to build with you know more spot removal more sweepers to slow the game down rather than you accelerate to your wrath of god or whatever right well i also like sam also noted that uro plus pact of negation is again a pretty good combo like you're just very quickly hitting your five mana threshold where that becomes a live counter spell right you get to do things on your uro turns so i am very invested in this idea at this point and believe there's probably something more powerful than the default blue white builds as much as i love exploring them and hashing them out you always want to do the best possible thing not just a good version of a good thing yeah i'll start with mindstone and then i'll move on to better colors better colors better cards yeah i like that uh part of the problem for me was that i could solve all the problems in blue white and i could play all the spot removal instead of just trying to like ramp to my big thing but even when you're playing approach and teferi impact negation like it just makes sense to do the rampy thing but yeah if for whatever reason you needed more spot removal and interaction i think blue white makes more sense Okay. But also, you can't ignore the appeal of having access to Field of Ruin. I, I think that's an important card still in the format, even in the absence of Field of the Dead. Like, there's a lot of very good lands around. Heading a Phyrexian Tower isn't really going to do what you want it to in most instances, but there's still stuff like Castle Lockdwain, which has been very impactful in games I've played. Yeah. Castle Ardenvale is important. Uh, Search no, for Escanta, uh, obviously. I, I was going to say, you, you, you said Ardenvale, and I was like, no, that's not important, but I, I thought you meant Vantress. But yes, no, no. <laughs> Arden Vale is important. You're right. Although, I know better than to bring up Castle Vantress around you. Although point. I will concede that I think my approach deck is going to have a Vantress in it. Okay. Just really trying to get to that approach. But it might be worse than a Rivulet. That's interesting. Interesting little equation there. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not 100% done like tuning these deck lists or whatever, but... Yeah, they've been fun to tune, though. I, I have enjoyed the deck building process as it relates to Historic. Even the field decks, I had a lot of fun tuning them. And part of that is like underexplored format. Part of that is that there's really sweet options in this format and stuff that is like, well, if I go down this route, then I have to explore this card. And there's a lot of snowballs that start in deck building that are really interesting to suss out. Yeah, we're kind of at the point where Pioneer was. It's not yeah, as not as exacerbated as Pioneer was, where it's just like, okay, I can build 100 decks easy for this format. And now we're at the point for Historic, especially with Field Gone, where you get to start piecing together all of these cards from various formats. And it's, it's interesting, even though it's like the same game pieces. Mm-hmm. And then there's random Phyrexian Towers, which is just, again, right. what the hell. But, you know... <laughs> indescribable phyrexian towers no reason they should exist okay so do you think do you think phyrexian tower or stitcher supplier is going to get banned first stitcher supplier feels like it will eventually fuel a lot of different broken things phyrexian tower mostly points to the same end game but as i say that i'm like well now there's god pharaoh's gift and and citadel citadel i don't yeah i don't know which is which is more powerful uh, both are kind of absurd magic cards, really. Yeah, it, it'll be Tower. Tower will get banned. Not right away. Maybe after the PT and everyone plays like God Pharaoh's Gift or whatever. I'll say this. They only have to give you back 
common is, is it common or uncommon uncommon i think wild cards if they ban stitcher supplier if they ban oh true phyrexian tower they have to give you rare ones so always oh, got to preserve those wild cards under all circumstances oh yeah this this goes back to like 50 minutes ago but one of the things i wanted to bring up was like remember when you would have to spend 2x the wild cards <laughs> to, ban- yes. to craft a historic card or whatever yeah Holy... i would be bankrupt i would be absolutely yeah. bankrupt yeah there, i mean there's there's no way that you could really even make content on this format right it's someone's nope. like i want you to stream a new deck and you're like i literally can't it would cost can't me hundreds to. of dollars yeah. yeah it's not a cheap format as it stands right now i will tell you that yeah oh well other stuff in the format i i guess back to mono red a little bit i i do think that this deck is very good ferocidon is a pain in the ass it is not ban worthy uh there are you know a few cards that are still more powerful than it or whatever but that card messes up like a lot of different archetypes and a lot of the common ways for them to like play back at mono red Mm -hmm. so have been very very impressed with that card and this deck overall i think that they're still playing a decent amount of pretty bad cards but you know anything in particular come to mind that just feels like it shouldn't be part of this whole equation just skewer the critics always okay and I don't know. I'm looking at a lot of the lists and Gigantha just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And like not sideboarding Chain Whirler maybe to enable Gigantha or whatever. I don't know. Stuff like that. Word. I have no real strong opinions on Mono Red. I've played it a little bit. I just leave that to people better suited to make those calls than me. It's funny. Like obviously Lightning Bolt would go in a lot of different places. But Wizards Lightning is just Lightning Bolt in this deck. Yeah, you have a lot of wizards. And Shock is fine. Light up the stage. Very good. Frenzy, Busted, Ramanap Ruins, overrated, I would say, just in general. But yeah, okay. overall, like... You're always playing it, though. Like, you yeah, say that, yeah. there's no way you're leaving home without four copies. Well, I, c- I could see metagames where you wouldn't play four. You know, if you're trying to, like, play Chain Whirler in a Sea of Mirror matches or whatever. But okay. yeah, regardless, default is four, for sure. But for the most part, this deck just has all good cards, except for things like Skewer the Critics. When Mono Red gets to that point where you're just happy to basically have any of your cards at any point of the game, you're you're in a nice spot. And then things like Ferocidon, where it's just like a main deck way to give you percentage points back against people who are really trying to beat you. You know, just the sacrifice decks, adding Wild Growth Walker. It's just like, come on, you know, like this, this deck is obviously very, very good. Yeah. And what else? I don't know. There's, there's like a lot of other decks too, where I want them to be playable, but just can't be given the state of the format where, where are you on, uh, on auras right now? I think that was the deck that really showed up during the first mythic. What do they call them? Mythic showdown mythic. Is it even called mythic arena open? Is that what it's called? Yeah, there's, there's the open. You're right. Okay. During the first uh, arena open weekend, it felt like that was the breakout deck and then field blew everything up. And now is there space to go back to auras at this point? There is for sure. I think that I think that's one of the better decks in a vacuum, but that's one of the decks that definitely suffers from the control decks being like straight blue white instead of Uro ramp. Yeah. Because then you have more things like seal away and cast out that you wouldn't necessarily have in your ramp deck, but you would have in your blue white control deck. So it's it's a little bit more difficult to actually build a battleship. And I think building a battleship was also very good against Field of the Dead, and it's less good against 
all the aggro decks and like priest of forgotten gods and stuff like right. that. Yeah, I was murdering that deck as at the time I was playing John Sacrifice pretty exclusively, and it just felt very, very easy. But the sacrifice decks have moved away from a lot of those setups. Yeah. So that tells me there is a good window for Auras to come back to say nothing of like Field of the Dead, where it was also kind of a challenging matchup for them too. So I, pl- I played Mono White Auras in the open and I got worked real hard by Rakdos because they had claimed the Firstborn and yep. really consistent Priest of the Forgotten Gods. You know, like their curve was a lot lower. So, you know, the turn after they play Priest, they're going to be able to use it instead of like play my Jade Light Ranger or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, claim the Firstborn certainly got me. But but now, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it's better or worse against the Citadel versions because maybe they can't interact with you as much, but you can be doing your curiosity thing and core spirit dance ring and building and this win. Yeah, building this big board and then they just fireball you for infinite and it's like, oh, okay, you know. So Yeah, you probably need some sideboard shift in that scenario because I think you have the, you have access to a fish deck if you want it. Right, And if they aren't able to juke into a new setup, I think you'll be advantage in post-board games against the pure Citadel decks. Yeah, so maybe you're not focusing on protecting your battleship. You are more focused on spell piercing their company yep. or their Citadel or whatever. But yeah, I mean, then then you run the risk of just having like an anemic beatdown plan and not being able to get over like a 5-7 Wild Growth Walker or something. So True. yeah. It's, it's kind of yeah. tough, but... Yeah, one of the decks that I wish was better are just things like Mono Blue. Uh, but the way the format's set up right now, I just don't think it's possible. Like, Thoughtseize also just kind of beats up that deck pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's good counterplay to a lot of the curiosity-reliant decks beyond just the Racto stuff. Even stuff like Innocent Blood lines up very well against what they're trying to do in a lot of scenarios. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't wait to Innocent Blood someone when they have a dive down. It's going to be so feels, nice. Feels good. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't done that yet, but I oh, I've cast I've cast a few innocent bloods. Dude, I haven't cast an innocent blood in like twenty years. It's a hell of a feeling. It still feels exactly the same as it used to in like Odyssey Mono Black. Yeah, uh, constructed My, like that was the deck that got me back to competitive magic because I built it on Magic Online as my first like standard deck. Oh yeah, I remember uh, this. I remember this in in like two thousand two. I guess it would be, uh, but I had to use. Frozen Shade as opposed to Nantuku Shade because I did not have the money for Nantuku Shade. I still want a ton. Didn't matter. Those were like nine tickets, man. It's not. It's no, not cheap. no. Nantuku Shades were they were a lot back then. That was like a premium, premium Magic card. It was probably like 20, 30 tickets. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm remembering like a little bit after the fact where they they take a little died bit. Down. And now yeah. they're they're just you know you try and sell one to a bot and it's like you see point and then like ten zeros and then like a two yes. or something. The bot laughs at you. Yeah. The bot's like, fine, I'll take your garbage and give you basically nothing. <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, there, there's there's a lot of stuff to explore for sure. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting some more reps in with the decks in my article. And if y'all want a place to start that is not like the tippy top tier one stuff, like definitely check out the article too. And I'm sure if any of the decks overperforms for me or whatever, we'll be talking about it in the future. Sounds good to me. Question time. Question time. So this week's question comes from Connor O.D. This feels a little bit like a conflict of interest. Dude, we've done 200 episodes. Granted, not all of them have had a question, but 
it's it's not rigged, okay? Just because we're, we're answering Connor's question. That is true. This is our editor, Connor. Maybe you could add in some dramatic flair as we announce your name or some kind of like trumpets going off or something exciting to celebrate your victory. Connor might be the only person who I know has listened to literally every, every episode. It's he, true. He's only taken like, he's taken a couple episodes off, right? Like For the birth of his daughter. That was it. That's the only yeah. time Connor ever took any time off. Yep. So I, I don't know if he's actually like listening, listening, but he's definitely had to listen to them. So I'm listening. We'll see based on how well he adds flourishes to his uh, name being announced here. But anyway, Connor would like to know, does magic have too many formats and this gets debated back and forth all the time. I know you and I have kind of flip-flopped on this. Like, well, not even flip-flop it. We both love to build decks and we love new sandboxes and we get excited every time one shows up. But if you ask me right now, does magic have too many formats? My answer is a slam dunk. Yes. There's just too much to keep track of, especially given the fact that there's no, real organized play driving any of this stuff? My answer is hells yeah. And I've definitely felt at times that there have been too few formats or it's just like, well, the way magic is now, if standard stinks or there's about to be a new set, like the format's going to change, there's about to be a rotation or whatever. I just have nothing Mm -hmm. to do. And now is a time where I have too much to do, which is kind of cool but it also means that if we're doing a podcast on one format per week, we're also alienating a lot of people, which also stinks. And I think that Magic should have standard, like a rotating format. They should have something like Modern that's, you know, this non-rotating format that is semi-recent. And honestly, you know, maybe uh, Pioneer is like a better example of that, but Pioneer probably won't take off because people are already invested in modern. And then you should have things like legacy where you can play it if you want to, but no one's really going to talk about it. And yeah, right now there's pioneer, which initially I think cannibalized people from standard and modern, which, you know, when you're, when you're introducing a new format and the net result is not like more people are playing magic. It's the format is cannibalizing from your other formats. That's probably a bad thing. And then they had to like go ahead and make historic two, which granted I think like pioneer is probably a fine idea. And in a vacuum historic is a fine idea because it's on arena and we need something to do with our older cards or whatever, but both existing at the same time is pretty bad. Yeah. So yeah, no dispute on my end. I, I think that either one in and of itself is completely acceptable the two together i don't know what we're doing here i think we didn't need pioneer i i enjoyed it i liked it but i don't know it it, it was also weird because it kind of came out of left field we were not expecting there to be any sort of announcement like this and i don't know the the format just started off with like no ban list which kind of indicated to me that they hadn't done the work behind it I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened, where, where that format came from. And then now Historic exists on Arena. I like it. I I like the fact that it is being curated to some degree. I don't necessarily like how it's being curated in a lot of instances, but I do like the fact that it exists and it's 
continually being like fresh and not just like pioneer missing a bunch of sets or whatever. Hmm. But now that we have historic, I don't know. I, like their, their goal is to like eventually get pioneer on arena. And what I think they should do is like keep historic and kill pioneer. I agree with you. That has been where I've fallen for a while now, but it's kind of mind blowing. If you actually just sit and list all the ways you could play magic right now in the midst of a pandemic where like, there should be challenges towards playing magic. And there there are, there are very real challenges. Like we're basically locked out of stores. But if I wanted to just play magic and didn't really care about how I did so, my options right now would be standard, historic, pioneer. If I go to magic online, I get modern and legacy and vintage. And then there's some kind of new weird draft that they introduced today that I, I don't even know the specifics of, but it's like solo drafting and you always have a fresh pack and you take two picks every time. And then there's That's weird. all, yeah, then there's all the typical forms of draft that exist on Magic Online. Then you go to Arena and you can draft Amonkhet Remastered. You could also draft, I think, M21 right now, but I don't even know if that's true because there's too many things to keep track of. You, and you should always be able to draft the current set and they make it so that you can't do that. And I don't know why, but whatever. Yeah. So like we are two of the most invested people in magic on the planet. And I can't tell you all the ways you can theoretically play right now. So that feels like too much. And I'm not sure the benefit of all this. And I, and all of this, I didn't mention like the actual most popular format, EDH, which is struck hardest by the pandemic, I think, but people are still finding ways to go through that. And also like, it's going to be like this Commander Legend set, which is draftable. It's going to be playable as a multiplayer draft set on Magic Online. So that's opening up a whole new window, quite frankly. And if it's successful, it could be a real game changer. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's been missing from the digital magic space for a long time or these kind of social uh, EDH type spaces. So if that is successful, I think we've gone even further down the rabbit hole and it can be overwhelming. I like providing choice to people, but you have to be cognizant of choice fatigue. I read a really interesting article today, actually, about it was uh, over on Kotaku about someone who was singing the praises of a handheld system they bought because it used cartridges. And their point was when I'm on my computer with my Steam account and I have access to hundreds and hundreds of games. Paralysis. And yeah, the paralysis that comes with it. And it, it's true. It's like a real thing. Having your options limited can be useful in terms of, okay, this is what I enjoy right now. You know, like I said, I've made arguments the other side too, where I've tried to say we should have block again because there should be multiple ways for people to explore cards. And you want people to get as much value out of their cards as possible. Maybe part of the problem is that all of this is congealing around a lot of the same cards right now, given elevated power level. So like I can go play Uro in Modern or I can yeah. play it in Standard or I can play it in Pioneer and it all kind of feels the same. And that's a really big choke point for the diversity of experiences you usually get from these things. So maybe step one is address that issue and get more diversity of play experience back. Step two then is think about what each of these formats is accomplishing. Make sure each one has unique goals, has clear goals. We've talked about that before. And then go down that path and be sure you're providing for what your players actually want and not just providing them with decision paralysis. Yeah, there, there's a lot of history I could cite here. One of the things being, uh, I, I don't remember the exact thing that was going on at the time, but there there was a very old complaint on Magic Online about 
like just some of the cues not being there or some of the cues getting cut down or whatever. And I, I think it was Lee Sharp who was in charge of the messaging at the time. And he, he was the person who was noting that it was just like every queue has three people waiting in it or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, that's, that's not okay. Right. So we should just cut this down. And that's, that's a good idea. That is a, a very like self aware thing to notice and just be like, Oh yeah, this, this is our product. This is how people are interacting with it. And this is not behavior that is good for anyone really, you know, and they took steps to fix it. And now it's weird. It's like, there's, there's no real life tournaments, but there's, there's magic online and arena and they're both offering different products and, you know, not even like double masters and the current set and the commander stuff and like the cube stuff and the weird drafts and whatever, but it's just like arena is faster and magic online is a little bit slower there's all these different constructed formats and there used to be a PTQ system to guide people. It was like, right. if you are playing in PTQs and you're trying to qualify, you're on that grind. Well, it's standard season and basically everyone yeah. is playing standard, right? So important. And yeah, that that's huge. That is getting everyone in the same queue. That is making it so the content has a concrete narrative and it means that basically everyone who's invested in magic is like all kind of doing the same stuff. You know, it's like if, if I'm like working on modern for some reason and I want to talk to my friends about it, but like one of them has a pioneer tournament coming up and the other one has a standard tournament coming up. It's like, that sucks. Right. And I think that when paper comes back, that will probably remain to be the case, if not get even worse, especially as you know, maybe, maybe arenas like, OP shrinks a little bit or whatever, but I don't know. Magic online has that same problem too, where it's like, okay, I have this weekend free. I want to play in some PTQs. Well, there's a standard, a legacy and a modern one. It's like, well, how the hell do I like prepare for all three of those? You know? Yeah. I'm about to go full old man yelling at clouds on you. Uh, before I go down that path, I want to wrap back around to our earlier themes of magic being all about more and more and more and right. kind of profit now, like this all shapes into that, right? Because if you have more formats, you can sell cards to each of those players. Right. It's like, I have to buy a standard deck on Magic Online or buy a Pioneer deck on Magic Online. And it's like, well, joke's on you, uh, you know, card hoarders. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, they're, they're trying, right? And certainly when it comes to paper magic, that is definitely true. Yeah. And I think, again, that's a thing short-term you get a lot of buy-in long-term has some negative effects on your player base and could cost you over the, a period of many, many years. But the goal is to sell products to all these people. That's why I think that's part of the reason we saw the shift in power level. Like you wanted to sell cards uh, as modern playable. And that's a good goal. I mean, we certainly know that was a goal, right? There was modern horizons. That was very clearly the goal of that set. It had no other goal. So it's fine. It just got a little out of hand and, went a little fast and tried to do a little bit too much too soon. And that's the problem with all good goals is if you carry them to extremes, they get problematic. And that goes nicely to my point where I go full old man yelling at clouds, the virtue of the internet and like media on demand on shared human experiences is that none of our experiences match up anymore. Like it used to be everyone watched the same shows at the same time. And yeah the entire like cultural 
you think about cultural phenomenons, like for whatever reason, the Seinfeld finale is popping into my head right now because I'm old enough to remember that. But I like remember going to school and it's all anyone talked about because it was something everyone in the culture experienced at the exact same time. But the PTQ system was also a reflection of that. And it was also geographically based too. So all of the people I knew in the Northeast region were focused on standard and I could message all my friends and I knew we were all thinking about the same thing and trying to win the same tournaments. And it really formed a community and it formed bonds and it formed narratives. Like you said, like I would go on star city and I know it's standard PTQ season. I'm going to hear all about standard. Maybe there'll be one outlier article and that's it. But everything is focused on this one goal that the entire magic community shares. And there's nothing resembling that anymore. And in some ways, the freedom of choice and the complete wealth of options is is good. It feels nice to have that. And in other ways, it's taking away from a lot of shared experiences. So what's the perfect balance? I don't know, but it does feel like we've gone way too far down the path of too many formats at this point. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's kind of funny too how they inadvertently shot themselves in the foot where it's like, oh, we want to do all these different formats and sell people different magic cards. And then there are things like Oko and Uro that are just multi-format <laughs> all-stars. So it's like, well, I have my $70 Uros. So I guess I just play basically like the same deck in Pioneer as I do in Standard and don't really have to buy that much. Like, you know, joke's on you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I... That's probably beneficial though, still, because it reaches to more total players as opposed to one player who buys four or five decks. Like, if you think of the way most people engage with Magic, you'd rather hit as many players as possible than try and get that one whale who's invested and owns everything. Yes, but if you have a person who has the time to play Standard and Pioneer or, you know, multi formats, right? Chances are that if they like magic and they're engaging with magic and they have the time to do those things, they're going to spend their time on it regardless. So you actually, you want cards that are like playable in Pioneer and Modern, but also not have them to be the best thing to be doing in Standard. Right. Because you you want someone to play Uro in Standard and then like Jace the Mind Sculptor in Modern and keep those things kind of separate. Or, you know, and then like have Uro be playable in Modern, but not the best thing that you can be doing. So yeah, you want to touch the fringes of the format and occasionally you have a breakout star. Like Arclight Phoenix was the perfect example of a breakout star, I think, that just very much, I won't say took over, but I guess it did for a while. It took over it modern did. for yeah, a period. Yeah. And I think that was a good thing because it was exciting. It showed like there was always a possibility for a breakout star to hit this really huge format. But then, like I said, after that point, every set was Modern Horizons and just completely warped modern around it. Yeah, so it, I, th- I think it is kind of weird. I feel like there being things like Uro that is the best thing in Standard and probably the best thing in Modern is not good. But if it's Arclight Phoenix, where it's maybe the best thing to be doing in Modern and solid in Standard, then that is way better. You know, because someone else isn't going to be like, oh, I'll play like this Tier 2, is it Phoenix deck in Standard right. because I have the cards for Modern. It's like, no, I'll just get a different Standard deck, right? And then you get people double dipping in in all of these formats. So obviously there's a, a point where someone is uh, priced out. And I think a lot of that happens when it's like, well, you know, talk about like the third format or whatever, uh, or talk about people having 
paper collections for multiple formats and then arena collections for multiple formats and stuff like that. At that point, you start to lose people and then not everyone is engaging in everything. And then that's where you have those social disconnects. And then that is what takes away from the thing that people like so much about magic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It hurts. Magic is a lifestyle brand, which is, I think magic's most important asset long-term. Yeah. The fact that you can be a magic player as your primary identity differentiates it from so many other experiences that I think it got swept under the rug and it gets understated in the current era that I don't think people are really magic players anymore. They don't identify it that way. But if you ask me like who I was as a person going back a few years ago, I was a magic player. And I think that it's a powerful statement for a brand to be able to make and one that doesn't come easily. It comes with 25 years of hard work and sweat and properly serving your fan base and listening to people and giving thanks to people who paved the way to enable this lifestyle and like the shining beacons of that lifestyle who went on to accomplish other great things were all important to show, look, you can be this magic player and still be John Finkel or whoever, you know, is a magic role model of yours. You could still go on to do these things. That was so valuable for the brand. And I don't know how you get that back under the current circumstances. It's, it's funny, like play the game, see the world was not quite there. Right. And especially since they sort of butchered it when it's like PT Albuquerque or whatever. But now we have the phrase, you know, it's not about the magic. It's about the gathering. And it's like, that's, that's also kind of close, right? Where it's like hanging out with your friends, blah, blah, blah. And, And that, that does obviously matter, but it is more so about, like you said, it being a lifestyle and you having those bonds that are created via shared experience. And now they are purposefully, purposefully inadvertently uh, causing those bonds to sort of split a little bit, possibly a lot. And that's, that's definitely not great. It's not. I hate to end things on a bad note. Think of something positive to say quickly. No, on, on, on the bright side, we have a lot of cool stuff to think about, you know? Very true. Uh, Lots of formats to explore, always busy, always working. Yeah. Magic magic has kept my mind occupied for 22 years or so. What what more can I ask? You know, and they're they're still doing it. So I appreciate that. And I also like went through the ringer with a bunch of people and have those relationships that, you know, probably aren't going to go away. But as far as forming new relationships from here on out, it's it's a little bit dicier, but you know I, I I want people to be able to have the same positive experiences from magic that I did because right. it, it did shape my way shape my life in a huge way. Yeah, save my life. I always say that. Yeah, if, if people ever talk to me about it, I'm like I don't know where I'd be without it. So I like you said, I want everyone else to get that same opportunity. I was only able to get out of a shitty home situation via contacts that I made from magic. Yep. That's it. I, I think that story echoes throughout the community and you find a lot of people who found their people and their safety and their way of life and magic. And I want to make sure they can continue to do that. Right. And now if it's like, well, I'm, I'm a pioneer and standard person and you're a, a modern and draft person, like this just isn't going to work out. And <laughs> it sounds like a star cross relationship. Yeah. You know, ah, oh, that's game. 
Good luck. <laughs>